0: It's time for another edition of Fighting for the Faith. Friday, March 29th, 2013. It's Good Friday, the day we remember Christ's bitter sufferings and death on the cross for our sins and for our salvation. For tuning in, you're listening to Fighting for the Faith. My name is Chris Roseborough. I am your servant in Jesus Christ, and this is the program that dishes up a daily dose of biblical discernment, the goal of which, help you to think biblically, help you to think critically, help you compare what people are saying in the name of God to the Word of God. Now, on Good Friday, um, I have a um, tradition, a you know, historical precedent, if you would, of deviating from the fighting for the faith script. The reason being is that this is not a day when I can think about heresy. The only thing I can really think about is Christ and him crucified for my sins. And I think that's the right thing to focus on on a day like this. And because I know how busy we Americans or those of you listening in other countries, in other Western uh, nations, are... I know that there's a good chance that many of you will not have the opportunity to attend a Good Friday church service today. And so in years past, I've always made a point of taking the broadcast and focusing it on Christ, and I'm not going to do anything different today. In fact, um, if you would suffer the thought, think of today's edition of Fighting for the Faith as, well a poor imitation, if you would, of a Good Friday church service. It's not really a church service, but I want to bring you some good hymns, and I want to bring you some good teaching. Not that my teaching I consider it good, but um, to focus us today appropriately on where our focus needs to be, and that's Christ on the cross. And so what we're going to do today is we're going to... We're going to intersperse some teaching with, well, some hymns. I thought that would be appropriate. And so if you are listening via the podcast on iTunes, then you will notice that immediately below the entry for this episode, there is a, uh, it says, Good Friday hymns for uh, Good Friday Fighting for the Faith. And it's a PDF that you can download so that you can sing along. All the hymns are in the public domain and uh, so, you know, what we're gonna do is we're gonna kind of intersperse it. We'll start with a hymn, then we'll have a teaching. We'll have another hymn, then another teaching, another hymn, a teaching, and then we'll end with a hymn. That's what we're going to do today. And so, think of it as a long devotional, okay? And you know, I apologize that <laughs> I have to subject you to my uh, my idea of t- of preaching. So, um, what? Let me tell you what we're gonna do here. Um, we'll begin with the hymn, Not All the Blood of Beasts, hymn uh, 431 in the uh, Lutheran Service book, and then I'm going to give an extended expository teaching on Luke chapters 22 and 23, uh, which records for us the bitter sufferings and death of Christ, you know, basically starting with um, the, uh, the, the Lord's Supper um, and his betrayal. And then his trial, and then his crucifixion. So we're going to be tracking with the uh, the Luke's account of uh, Christ's passion, and I'm going to walk us through it. I'm going to walk us through it, throw in some um, homily-like thoughts if you if you uh, like, and then when I'm finished, we'll sing another hymn, um, hymn number four thirty-seven. Alas, and did my Savior bleed? Then we'll switch gears and listen to a short homily uh, from Pastor Sam Schulteis of uh, Redeemer Lutheran Church in Huntington Beach, California. We'll sing another hymn, uh, Upon the Cross Extended. Oh, and by the way, I'm only going to play the the music. I will not be singing it uh, so as not to torture and mess everything up. And then we will end, uh, our ringer today, if you would, is uh, Pastor Jeremy Rody of Faith Lutheran Church in uh, Capistrano Beach, California and his, uh, uh, his Good Friday hymn, and, uh, hymn uh, homily entitled The Seven Words from the Cross. And then we will end today with hymn number 451, Stricken, Smitten, and Afflicted. So that's what we're going to be doing today. Make yourself comfortable. Hopefully you have the ability to download and view the PDF so that you can sing along with the hymns. And with that, let's get into the program proper. Here we go. mercy, and peace to you from God our Heavenly Father and our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ through the power of His life-giving Spirit. Now we've all heard the stories. We all know how the story is supposed to end. Small town man, a nobody, finds himself in a situation where he becomes a hero and is launched out of obscurity onto the world stage where he conquers every obstacle, finds a way to turn every setback into a setup for his next victorious conquest. And for all of his triumphs, the world rewards the hero with the keys to the city, popularity, prestige, and political power. It's the classic zero-to-hero, rags-to-riches, Mr. Smith-goes-to-Washington kind of story. We've all seen this story played out many times in books, film, and in living history. This is part of the mystique of every presidential race here in the United States, watching as a man rises from city mayor to congressman to senator to presidential candidate to president-elect to Inauguration Day. Now, at the beginning of the week, our gospel text began with Jesus' triumphal entry into Jerusalem to the waving of palm branches and shouts of Hosanna to the Son of David. We all know how this story is supposed to end. So let's review the story up to this moment. Jesus walked onto the world stage and came out of nowhere, a small, podunk, flea-bitten backwater town in Judea called Nazareth. Nazareth. Can anything good come out of Nazareth? Apparently. Because step by step, day by day, Jesus showed himself equal to every task and every enemy. This Jesus healed the sick, mended the broken bodies of paralytics, men with shriveled arms had them restored, eyes and ears and mouths that did not work were now seeing and praising him. He has done all things well. He's driven out demons, fed tens of thousands of people with only a few loaves of bread and a couple of fish." While on his way to Jerusalem for the Passover, his close friend died, and Jesus stopped by Lazarus' tomb and unexpectedly and miraculously called Lazarus from the grave, and to the shock of everyone, Lazarus rose from the dead. The media was a buzz. the temple officials had no comment, and all of Jerusalem was saying Jesus' name. The atmosphere was electric, crackling with prophetic expectation. We all know how this story is supposed to end. This is the final chapter. Jesus is going to enter Jerusalem, flex his messianic muscles, and then there's going to be a coronation. He's going to be crowned king and sit on the throne of David forever. And that is exactly what happens. And if you don't pay attention to the story, or as they say while you're driving through a small town, don't blink or you'll miss it, because to the untrained observer, it wouldn't appear that the story ended in that way. In fact, to the untrained eye, it looks like Jesus, rather than going from zero to hero, instead went from hero to zero. And here... Let us examine today's gospel text as we consider the passion, bitter sufferings, and death of our Lord and Savior and King, Jesus Christ. Luke chapter 22, verse 1. Now the feast of unleavened bread came near, the one that's called the Passover, and the chief priests and the scribes were seeking how to kill Jesus, for they were fearing the people. Then... Satan entered into Judas, the one called Iscariot, who was of the number of the twelve. And departing, he spoke with the chief priests and the officers of the temple, how he might deliver him over to them. And they were glad, and they made a contract to give him money. Now pause for a second there. Consider the price, 30 pieces of silver. Many commentators note the fact that 30 pieces of silver was the going rate for a slave Back in first century Judea. So Jesus was literally sold for the price of a slave. Verse six. And he agreed to the proposal and then sought an opportune moment to deliver him over without the crowd. Then came the day of unleavened bread on which it is necessary to sacrifice the Passover lamb. And he sent Peter and John saying, go prepare for us the Passover so that we may eat. But they said to him, where do you will us to prepare it? And he said to them, behold, upon your entering into the city, a man bearing a water vessel will meet you. Follow him into the house that he enters and say to the householder of the house, the teacher says to you, where is the guest room where I may eat the Passover with my disciples? Hmm. What's with the cryptic cloak and dagger details? A man bearing a water vessel, follow him, ask him about a guest room, things like that. Well, the reason for the cloak and dagger here is actually pretty simple. Remember, Satan had already entered into Judas. Judas had already sold Jesus for the 30 pieces of silver. And so the signs that they're looking for, a man bearing a water vessel, not something you'd generally see in first century Judea. That was the woman's job. So they are giving him signs. So it's Peter and John going into town with only these signs to look for. The cloak and dagger details are simple. Okay, Jesus knows that the plot is afoot, but he's not about to let Judas spring his trap during this meal. This meal is his coronation supper. We continue. And he, that's the householder, will show you a large upper room furnished. Prepare the Passover there. And departing, they found it just as he said to them, and they prepared the Pascha. That would be the Passover lamb. And when the hour had come, Jesus reclined at the table with the apostles with him. Quick note here, Luke 22, verse 14. Here we have the disciples referred to as the apostles. The transition is beginning from disciple to apostle Luke 22:15 so he said to them i desire to eat this passover with you before i suffer For I say to you that I will not eat it until it is fulfilled in the kingdom of God. And then taking a cup, he gave thanks and said, Receive this and divide it among yourselves. For I say to you that I will not drink from the fruit of the vine until the kingdom of God comes. And taking bread, he gave thanks and broke it and gave it to them, saying, This is my body, which is given for you. This do in my remembrance. And likewise, the cup after dining said, This cup is the new covenant in my blood for you poured out. But behold, the hand of the one who betrays me is with me upon the table. But the Son of Man goes according to what has been determined. Nevertheless, woe to the man through whom he is delivered. And they began to question to themselves, Who then is it among them who would do this? And then an argument began among them. Who of them would be regarded as the greatest? Surreal, isn't it? Here Jesus is talking about his suffering, his death, his departing. He's given them bread, broken it, said, this is my body for you. Given them wine, said, take, drink, this is the blood of the new covenant. And then an argument breaks out regarding who would be the greatest. You see, the disciples think they know how this story will end. They're convinced that Jesus is going to be crowned king. And so they're jockeying here for different cabinet positions. who's going to be the chief magistrate of this or the head of that, or the you know you, you get what I'm saying verse twenty five But Jesus said to them, "The kings of the Gentiles rule over them. The Greek word's a little stronger than that. It's more like dominate, so the kings of the Gentiles dominate over them, and those who execute authority over them are called benefactors." but not so with you. Rather, the one who is greatest among you shall become as the youngest and the leader as the one who serves. For who is the greatest? uh, Who is the greatest? The one reclining at the table or the one serving? Think of the waiter here. Well, the obvious question is the one sitting at the table, right? You know, think of it this way. I mean, when you travel out and you decide that you're going to splurge and spend some money and you decide that you're going to go to that really fancy restaurant right and, and you're going to you're going to splurge and even you know tip the uh, the the waiter or somebody so that you can have that particular window uh, you know, seat next to the window, the one with the really good view, the one where only the really rich people or the super important people sit. Well, y- y- we've all seen those people at those tables, right? I mean, they don't pay any attention to the waiters per se. You know, they lift a finger, they they make a motion. Of course, the waiters are standing by at any, you know, so that any little slight movement or whatever to signal that that, that they are in need, those waiters are on them and and serving them hand and foot. In those situations, we understand the one at the table is the one who has the power, right? He, that's the greatest one. So Jesus is asking a question along these lines or painting a picture for us. For who is the greatest, the one reclining at the table or the one serving, the waiter, right? Is it not the one reclining at the table? And then Jesus points to himself and he says, but I am among you as the one who, who serves? oftentimes our brains dismiss data that doesn't make any sense don't dismiss what Jesus said or you will miss everything he said I am among you as one who serves who is this Jesus he's none other than God in human flesh he's not here to dominate he's here to serve Jesus' kingdom is not about being great in any way that the world thinks of greatness. Instead, it's the exact polar opposite. The greatest leaders that this world has produced are all men who rule over and dominate other people. doesn't matter if they're benevolent or tyrannical. Um, They rule. They dominate. They flex political power. They cast vision and put the masses to work to accomplish the vision. They have servants who wait on their every need. And yet, Jesus points to himself and says, He, that's God, is among them as a servant and a waiter. But you are those who have stayed with me in my trials And I make a covenant with you, just as my father made a covenant with me to give you a kingdom, that you may eat and drink at my table in my kingdom, and you will sit on thrones judging the twelve tribes of Israel. And now the subject changes. Simon, Simon, behold, Satan has desired to sift you as grain. Keep this in mind. Satan is never satisfied. It is not enough for Satan that he has Judas. Now he wants Peter as well. And believe me, Satan wants you and I as well. But Jesus says this, but I have prayed for you. Here's Christ, the mediator, the one mediator between God and man. He says, I have prayed for you in order that your faith might not fail. And when you turn back, Strengthen your brothers. And Peter said to him, Lord, I'm ready to go with you into prison and into death. That's what he thinks at the moment, right? But Jesus said, I say to you, Peter, the rooster will not call out today until three times you renounce even knowing me. And he said to them, when I sent you without money and bag and sandals, did you lack anything? And they said, well, nothing. And he said to them, but now. The one having money should take it, and likewise a bag, and the one not having a sword should sell his garment and go and buy a sword. For I say to you that this scripture must be fulfilled in me, and with the transgressors he was numbered. For what is written about me has its fulfillment. And they said, Lord, behold, here are two swords. But he said to them, It is sufficient. And going out, he went according to custom to the Mount of Olives, and the disciples followed him. And coming to the place, he said to them, Pray that you enter not into temptation. And he drew away from them about a stone's throw, and he knelt and he prayed, saying, Father, if you will, take this cup from me. Nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done." An angel from heaven appeared, from heaven strengthening him. You know, this kind of harkens back. You remember the story of Elijah after Mount Carmel? I mean, he fled for his life to Mount Horeb, and it talks about how angels appeared and strengthened him for his journey. So here again, we have the appearance of an angel, not to strengthen just any old prophet, but the prophet. Prophesied would come. So angels are strengthening him. Verse 44: And being in agony, he prayed earnestly, and his sweat began pouring down as drops of blood on the ground. Something to consider here. We've all seen pictures of Atlas. Are you familiar with Atlas? He's that guy who's got the entire world on his shoulders. Well, here, with Jesus in agony in the, in the garden, I think it's appropriate for us to consider a similar picture. Here, Jesus is in agony. And the reason he's in agony is because he's bearing the sins of the entire world upon himself. And he's God. The weight of our sin upon him is causing him to suffer agony. 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 Think of Atlas. The same kind of picture is going on here. And so rising from the prayer, he came to the disciples and found them sleeping from the grief. And he said to them, why are you sleeping? Rise, pray, so that you may not enter into temptation. And while he was speaking, behold, a crowd. And one called Judas, one of the twelve, was leading them. And he came near to Jesus to kiss him. But Jesus said to him, Judas, with a kiss you betray the son of man. And those around him, seeing what was going to happen, said, Lord, do you want us to strike with a sword? And one of them struck the servant of the high priest and cut off his right ear. But replying, Jesus said, enough of this. And then touching the ear, he healed him. And Jesus said to the chief priests and the officers of the temple who had come out against him. Have you come out as against a robber with swords and clubs? Notice who's in the the crowd here, chief priests and officers of the temple. These are religious leaders. This would be like, well, pastors coming out to arrest Jesus. That's kind of a close parallel, but not exactly. Jesus said, day after day, I was with you in the temple, but you did not stretch out your hands against me. But this is your hour, and the power of darkness. Now they seized him, and led him away, and brought him to the house of the chief priest, and Peter followed at a distance. Now, something to keep in mind here. Oftentimes, when we watch movies or Hollywood depictions of Jesus' trial... Um, Jesus is taken to, taken to some official looking building with huge columns and, you know, some court, you know, courtroom. And yeah. That's not what happened at first. It's the text is very clear. They brought him to the house of the chief priest. So we're, we're in a residential part of Jerusalem here. And of course, you know, the chief priest, he has money and so he's got a substantial house for the time. And in you know in his house, once you enter into the gate, there's a courtyard. And it's in his courtyard at his home where this takes place. It tells you something of the intimacy of the location. And when they had kindled a fire in the middle of the courtyard, they sat down together and Peter sat among them. So that kind of gives you the idea of the intimacy of this particular venue. And by the way... um trials that take place in people's uh, home courtyards in the middle of the night, these are kangaroo courts. The outcome has already been determined. Otherwise, they would be doing this by daylight in a public place in a real trial. The outcome has been determined even before Jesus has shown up. Now, a servant girl seeing Peter sitting in the light And looking closely at him said, hey, this man was also with him. Maybe this is one of the servant girls of the high priest. And she's just being a good faithful servant. They've got Jesus. I've seen this guy with Jesus too, right? But Peter denied it saying, woman, I do not know the man. So much for Peter's bravery. So much for his good intentions. How many times have you woken up in a week saying, today, I'm going to do this or I'm going to do that. I'm going to be brave for God, only to find yourself caving and cowering and giving in to sin. Peter's example here does provide us comfort because Christ is forgiving even of this. Now, consider the sin that he's committing too, by the way. Jesus himself said, if you deny me before men, I will deny you before the Father. That's what Jesus' right is here, to completely deny that he even knows Peter, because Peter is denying that he knows him. And yet Christ forgives even this sin. Now a short time later, another one saw him and said, well, you are also one of them. But Peter said, man, I am not. And after an interval of about an hour, another one emphatically insisted, saying, well, certainly this man was with him, for he too is a Galilean. But Peter said, I don't know what you are saying. And immediately, while he was still speaking, the rooster crowed. And then the Lord turned and gazed at Peter. Remember the intimacy of this kangaroo court venue, the courtyard of the home of the high priest. Not only did Peter deny knowing Jesus, He did it in Jesus' very presence. It says here, the Lord turned and gazed at Peter. And Peter remembered the word of the Lord, how he had said to him, before the rooster crows today, you will deny me three times. And he went out and he wept bitterly. And then the men holding Jesus in custody were mocking him as they were beating him And then covering him, they were asking, saying, prophesy, who is it that struck you? Now, oftentimes our English translations, you know, translated as blindfold. This wasn't any game. It was probably a bag stuck over Jesus's head that was covering him. So they cover his face with a bag and then beat him. Prophesy, who is it that struck you? And they said many other things, blaspheming against him. Note again, these are religious people. They're at the home of the high priest. What kind of religion is this, where you beat people, mock them, put bags over the head, punch them in the face? What kind of religion is this? And when the day came, the assembly of the elders of the people gathered both chief priests and scribes, and they led Jesus away to their council, saying, If you are the Christ, then tell us. But Jesus said to them, If I tell you, you will not believe, and if I ask, you will not answer. But from now on the Son of Man shall be seated at the right hand of the power of God. And they all said, Are you the Son of God then? And he said to them, You say that I am. And then they said, What further testimony do we need for we have heard from his own mouth? Quick note, Jesus has in the expert opinions of these expert religious authorities just committed the capital crime of blasphemy. Now, this harkens back to a little detail that John wrote in his gospel from John chapter 5, verse 18. We read, this was why the Jews were seeking all the more to kill Jesus, because not only was he breaking the Sabbath, but he was even calling God his own father, making himself equal with God. Let me ask a question. How do such important religious officials, keep in mind that they don't work at one of the local pagan temples, how do such important religious officials who hold the highest offices of the Levitical priesthood become so blind and so hard-hearted that they don't even recognize that Jesus is the very God whom they claim to worship, the very God whom they believe they are actually serving through this abortion of justice? That they're calling a trial. By confessing to be the Son of God, Jesus has not perjured himself. He spoke the truth. And yet these religious authorities, rather than say amen and fall on their faces and confess Jesus is Lord, believe Jesus has just given them the rope to hang him. Now this speaks to the sheer satanic power of religious deception. Religious deception ultimately renders its victims believing that good is evil and evil is good, even to the point of believing that God is the devil and that the devil is God. This is exactly what it means to be under the dominion of darkness. You are so spiritually blind, deaf, and dead that you believe it to be the highest religious duty to murder the very God who created you. Chapter 23 but they were urgent, saying, He stirs up the people teaching through all Judea, from Galilee even to this place. Now, <clears throat> this is an embarrassing turn of events. Pontius Pilate was not w- known for being a lily livered, spineless magistrate, quite the opposite. So, why is Pilate so hesitant? Well, because even he could see that Jesus hasn't done anything deserving death. But, as you will see, All it takes is a little political pressure, and even Pilate will jettison what few principles that he has for the sake of a political objective. That's how compromise does its work. Verse 6. So when Pilate heard this, he asked whether the man was a Galilean, and when he heard that he belonged to Herod's jurisdiction, he sent him over to Herod, who was himself in Jerusalem at that time. And when Herod saw Jesus, he was very glad, for he had long desired to see him, because he had heard about him. He was hoping to see some sign done by Jesus. Think magic trick here. So he questioned him at some length, but he made no answer. And the chief priests and the scribes stood by, vehemently accusing Jesus. And Herod, with his soldiers, treated him with contempt and mocked him. Then arraying him in splendid clothing, he sent him back to Pilate. And Herod and Pilate became friends with each other that that very day, for before this they had been at enmity with each other. Interesting how Jesus has a tendency to make strange bedfellows, if you would. Luke 23, verse 13. Fatal mistake. I will therefore punish and release Jesus? Punish him for what? He just said Jesus hasn't done anything wrong. If he hasn't done anything wrong, why punish him? By compromising, Pilate has now opened the door just a little and these people are going to fling it wide open. They're going to burst the door down. The compromise has been made. This isn't about justice now. This is about something else. Luke 23, 18. But they all cried out together, Away with this man and release to us Barabbas. Now Barabbas is a man who had been thrown into prison for an insurrection started in, started in the city for murder. Pilate addressed them once more, desiring to release Jesus, but they kept shouting, Crucify him! Crucify him! Third time he said to them, Why? What evil has he done? I have found in him no guilt deserving death. And here's the compromise again I will therefore punish and release him. But they were urgent, demanding with loud cries that he should be crucified. And their voices prevailed. So Pilate decided that their demand should be granted. So much for principle, so much for scruples. What's the point of having morals if you're not going to abide by them? This isn't justice now. So Pilate decided that their demand should be granted. He released the man who had been thrown into prison for insurrection and murder, for whom they asked, but he delivered Jesus over to their will. And now, The big moment has arrived. It's finally here. This is it. Less than a week earlier, Jesus entered Jerusalem to palm branches and shouts of Hosanna. Everyone knew what was coming next a coronation. Jesus was to be made king, to sit on the throne of his father David forever. But Jesus has told us in this text that his kingdom is not like any kingdom of this earth. He's not a king who dominates. He's a servant. And according to the prophecy that Jesus said must be fulfilled, he was numbered with the transgressors. That prophecy describes Jesus as a suffering servant. A suffering servant. So the time has come for Jesus' coronation and his first act as king will be to serve his subjects by suffering and dying for their sins now luke does not record the details of jesus's coronation but matthew diligently has here are the details matthew chapter 27 verses 27 through 31 Then the soldiers of the governor took Jesus into the governor's headquarters and they gathered the whole battalion before him. They stripped him and put a scarlet robe on him and twisting together a crown of thorns, they put it on his head and put a reed in his right hand. Now you may be tempted to say, but wait, they were doing this mockingly. Ah, what men do for evil, God turns to good. What they think is some mock sham show, if you would, is in reality the for real coronation of Jesus. And then they knelt, mocking him, saying, Hail, King of the Jews! And then they spit on him, took the reed, and struck him on the head. And when they had mocked him, they stripped him off of the robe and put his own clothes on him and then led him away to crucify him. Back to Luke. Chapter 23, starting at verse 32. Two others who were criminals were led away to be put to death with him. And when they came to the place that is called the skull, there they crucified him and the criminals, one on his right and one on his left. And Jesus said, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. And then they cast lots to divide his garments, and the people stood by watching But the rulers scoffed at him saying, he saved others, let him save himself if he is the Christ of God, his chosen one. Let me pause for a second. Are they, do they not know the prophecies? Do they not know that he's not here to save himself? He's here to save them, to save you, to save me. He is saving others. That's why he's not saving himself, because according to the prophecy, he was numbered with the transgressors. The soldiers also mocked Jesus, coming up and offering him sour wine and saying, If you are the king of the Jews, save yourself. But he's not there to save himself. And he is the king of the Jews. He's wearing his crown. He is the king of the Jews, and he's here to save Us sinners. There was also an inscription over him and said, This is the King of the Jews. The inscription spoke the truth. One of the criminals who were hanged railed at him, saying, Are you not the Christ? Save yourself and us. You want to shout back, He is saving you. But the other rebuked him, saying, Do you not fear God, since you are under the same sentence and same condemnation? And we indeed justly, for we are receiving the due reward for our deeds. But this man has done nothing wrong. That's right. And he said, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. You see that? Poor, miserable thief knew that Jesus was innocent and that he himself was guilty. And he recognizes that Jesus is king. And he says, remember me when you come into your kingdom. And Jesus said to him, truly, I say to you, today you will be with me in paradise. Now it was about the sixth hour and there was darkness over the whole land until the ninth hour, while the sun's light failed The curtain of the temple was torn in two. Then Jesus, calling out with a loud voice, said, "'Father, into your hands I commit my spirit.' And having said this, he breathed his last. The king is dead. "'But wait,' you say. "'The story isn't supposed to end like this. "'Are you sure that you're telling the story right?' The hero is supposed to defeat the enemy, slay the dragon, you know, win, not lose. Were you not paying attention? Did you blink? I I told you not to blink. It had to be this way. God's word had to be fulfilled because God cannot lie. And as for whether Jesus won or lost... Consider these words from the prophet Isaiah. 53, verse 1. Who has believed what he has heard from us? To whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? For he grew up before him like a young plant, and like a root out of dry ground, he had no form or majesty that we should look at him, and no beauty that we should desire him. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace, and with his wounds we are healed. All of all we, like sheep, we've gone astray, we've turned every one to his own way. But the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. He was oppressed, and he was afflicted. Yet he opened not his mouth, like a lamb that is led to the slaughter, and like a sheep that before it shears is silence he has put him to grief. And when his soul makes an offering for guilt, he shall see his offspring, he shall prolong his days, and the will of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. Out of the anguish of his soul he shall see and be satisfied. By his knowledge shall the righteous one, my servant, make many to be accounted or credited as righteous, for he shall bear their iniquities. Therefore I will divide him a portion with the many. And he shall divide the spoil with the strong, because he poured out his soul to death and was numbered with the transgressors. Yet he bore the sin of many and makes intercession for the transgressors. Our text ends with these details. The king is dead. Now there was a man named Joseph from the Jewish town of Arimathea. He was a member of the council, A GOOD AND RIGHTEOUS MAN, WHO HAD NOT CONSENTED TO THE DECISION AND ACTION, AND HE WAS LOOKING FOR THE KINGDOM OF GOD. AND THIS MAN WENT TO PILATE, AND ASKED FOR THE BODY OF JESUS. THEN HE TOOK IT DOWN, WRAPPED IT IN A LINEN SHROUD, LAID HIM IN A TOMB CUT IN STONE, WHERE NO ONE HAD EVER YET BEEN LAID. IT WAS THE DAY OF PREPARATION, AND THE SABBATH WAS BEGINNING. The women who had come with him from Galilee followed and saw the tomb and how his body was laid. Then they returned and prepared spices and ointments. On the Sabbath they rested, according to the commandment. The king is dead. But as I like to say in television and movies, stay tuned. Not to give a spoiler alert here, but we all know that there's more to that saying the king is dead. There's another half to that phrase. Do you know it? On Sunday, you'll get to say it. But until then, it is appropriate for us to only say, The king is dead. Hymn number 437 Alas, and did my savior bleed. Pastor Samuel Schulteis of Redeemer Lutheran Church, Huntington Beach, California, and his Good Friday homily entitled, The Journey is Finished.
1: In the name of Jesus, amen. O Christ, you walked the road, our wandering feet must go. You faced for us temptation's power and fought our evil foe. But isn't there another way, another road? Father, if it be your will, take this cup from me. Nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. And we think, can't we go straight from Palm Sunday and the joy and the pomp and the hosannas to the joys and glory of Easter? No, you cannot. There is no other way. There is no detour around Golgotha. No Easter without Good Friday. No glory apart from the crucified one. You can't have one without the other. And so on this Good Friday we are reminded that true faith does not worship Jesus first in his resurrection but first, rather, in his death and burial. For this purpose, Jesus says, I was born, and for this reason I have come into the world to be crucified, dead, and buried for you. It has been a long trek for Jesus, a long season of Lent, a longer three-year ministry before that, healing and miracles, teaching and preaching, raising the dead, casting out the demons, and it all comes down to this. It all comes down to one Friday afternoon, to Good For You Friday. Today, all the great journeys of the Scriptures come to their final destination, for all biblical roads lead to and from this cross, this crucified one. Today, the Father leads Isaac up the mountain, bound in the cords of death. But there is no angel to intervene this time, though no, the Lord will provide himself as the sacrifice. He does not withhold his son, his only son, for you, So today, the Passover lamb, without blemish, is sacrificed for you. He is led into your slavery, that you might be led to life in his exodus, accomplished in Jerusalem. Today, the Holy One of Israel goes into the Babylonian exile to take captivity captive itself in his own death, that we might be welcomed home, returned, restored, and forgiven. Today, Jesus' body is carried and laid to rest in a garden, in a tomb, in order to restore paradise that was lost for all sons of Adam and all daughters of Eve. Today, our anxious Palm Sunday question is finally answered. Are we there yet? Yes, we have arrived. Look down the Via Dolorosa, the way of sorrows, the way of grief. The hill there is set before you. The road goes up to Calvary, to the place of the skull, a hill of dry bones waiting for the Lord to breathe out his dying breath in order that we might have life. And just in case you thought you were lost, there's a sign above his head, and the inscription reads thus, Jesus of Nazareth, the King of the Jews. Pilate's words ring out with each swing of the hammer. Behold your King. You've come to the right spot. This is no mistake. This is no accident. Jesus' hour of glory has finally arrived. Jesus is crucified. The crucified Christ is his greatest glory, and Jesus is crucified between two criminals, four criminals, four sinners, and exiles like us. Jesus is left there on that cross, abandoned and forsaken to journey the rest of the way on his own, alone, for you and for the world. See, that's the real problem with hell, not the cold, not the heat. It's that the God who made you, the God who created you and loves you, turns his back on you. And he ignores you. He forsakes you. He gives you exactly what you wanted all along, to be left alone without him. But the thing about Good Friday is that he will not let you suffer alone. He will not let you be forsaken. He will step ahead of the grave before you, and he will go there for you. As if a world of pain and agony and mockery and sorrow weren't enough, as if the cross and the torturing wasn't enough, Jesus suffers hell for you. He suffers damnation for you. God forsakes God, all to welcome you home. And you are forgiven here. You are saved here. His death brings you life. His exile returns you home to the Father. His exodus ushers you into his promised land. For he is crucified outside of the city walls of Jerusalem to gather you into the courts of his heavenly city, Jerusalem. And so for you, Jesus walked this lonely road into Jerusalem through the palms and through the hosannas amidst the spatter of hatred, through the scourging and the nails to the cross. And he did it all for you who so often walk your own way. How beautiful the feet that trod the road that leads us back to God. How beautiful the feet that walked the shores of Galilee that traveled throughout Judea that rode into Jerusalem in humility. How beautiful upon the feet of Mount Calvary are the feet of him who was pierced for you. Jesus will leave no road untrodden for you, his people. And so the road takes one final turn. One last bend in the road as the funeral procession goes from Mount Calvary to the grave, to the cemetery. A hasty burial, a borrowed tomb. Even in death, the Son of Man has no place to lay his head. And though they did not understand everything Jesus said or did at the time, Joseph of Arimathea, Nicodemus, these nighttime disciples still came and buried Jesus because only those who stand at the tomb of Jesus can come to know the glory of the resurrection. And so it is too for us because all Christian funerals are just like that too. They are acts of finality. But they are also acts of faith. For we bury the dead in Christ, knowing that while it appears to be the end of the world and the end of the road, it is not. In fact, as far as God is concerned, because of Good Friday, our burial and our resurrection have already happened. We are the ones waiting for the welcome home of the final Easter, because not one of his bones were broken. He will walk again. And so on this eve of the Sabbath... His disciples are gathered, and they bury the great high priest. They adorn him in proper burial vestments. They anoint him with costly, heavy spices and lay him to rest in a tomb. So complete was his suffering and death for you that he could not even walk into his own tomb. He had to be carried there. But there the humiliation is over. Justice is satisfied. God's anger and wrath for sin is finally, ultimately, paid for. Your sin is gone. Your atonement is made, the sacrifice is accomplished, and the journey's end is here. O Christ, you walked the road for us, the curse undone. You journeyed to the cross for us, and our redemption won. The journey is complete, and all is accomplished. Jesus is crucified, dead, and buried for you. It is finished. In the name of Jesus, amen.
0: Hymn number 453, Upon the Cross Extended. Here's Pastor Jeremy Rody, of Faith Lutheran Church, Capistrano Beach, California, and his Good Friday homily entitled, The Seven Words from the Cross.
2: The first word of Christ, Luke 23. Two others who were criminals were led away to be put to death with him. And when they came to the place that is called the skull, there they crucified him. And the criminals, one on his right and one on his left. And Jesus said, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. And they cast lots to divide his garments.
3: He was stripped naked, his scourged body and bloody flesh exposed. Nails were hammered through sinew and tendon, passing through hands and feet into the heavy beams of wood. The cross was pulled upright, and he with it, lifted up for all to see. He draws all men to himself. Do not look away. Do not yet go on to Easter. This is the death of your Lord. This is the cost of your salvation. The blood that runs from his crown of thorns, the blood that seeps from his scourged flesh, this is the blood that has bought you. The blood he bleeds is the blood of his love. You who long for answers... This is he whom seers in old time chanted of with one accord. You, whom the stone tablets condemn, this is he to whom Moses points. You who groan in dying flesh, this is he whom Adam preaches. Together, There is a voice comprised of countless voices, a voice like the roar of rushing waters, calling you to the one who hangs on the cross. Do not take your eyes from him. He who gives you the breath of life now breathes the breath of death. The cross suffocates him. For each breath He must pull Himself up against the nails embedded in His hands and feet. Each breath, each word He speaks is purchased with agony. Seven words He speaks from the cross. Hear Him. Contemplate. He looks upon those who are crucifying Him His gaze begins with the soldiers. It widens to the Jewish leaders and Roman authorities. Was he there only because of them? No, he is wounded for our transgressions. He is crushed for our iniquities, our selfish choices, our constant pursuit of pleasure, our failure to do what is right. The weight of our sin crushes the breath from Him. We deserve His wrath, His rebuke. Instead, He pulls Himself up against the nails, gasps in breath, and says, Father,
2: forgive them, for they know not what they do. The second word of Christ, Luke chapter 23. One of the criminals who were hanged railed at him, saying, Are you not the Christ? Save yourself and us. But the other rebuked him, saying, Do you not fear God, since you are under the same sentence of condemnation, and we indeed justly? For we are receiving the due reward of our deeds, but this man has done nothing wrong. And he said, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. And he said to him, truly I say to you, today you will be with me in paradise. Two criminals,
3: one on his right and one on his left. Here is a picture, a microcosm of the whole world. These two criminals embody the entire human race. They were sentenced to death. So am I. So are you. We are all under the same sentence of condemnation. We are all dying, and indeed justly, for we are receiving the due reward of our deeds. Your cross may look different than those two next to Jesus. The cross on which you die might be a hospital bed. Your cross and death might be a car seat and windshield, a bottle of vodka, a senseless act of violence. The cross on which you die might be called heart disease or cancer. It makes little difference. We are all under the same sentence of condemnation. We are all hanging there with those two men. But there is a man who hangs with us. A man who dies with us. Notice him. Consider him. He is under the same sentence of condemnation, but this man, has done nothing wrong. Who is this man? Where has he come from? He is God, come in the likeness of men. He is the blessed one, come under the curse. He is the deathless one, come under death. He hangs with two criminals, and those two criminals represent the entire human race, which itself is divided in two. There is no escaping it. You are one criminal or the other. You are the condemned criminal who curses Christ until your dying breath. Or you are the condemned criminal who has no hope but to pray, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom those who want mercy from Jesus shall have it. There is no penance, no purgatory. Into your dying years, he speaks the words of absolution, the words of eternal life. Amen, I say to you, today you will be with me in paradise.
2: The third word of Christ John chapter 19 Standing by the cross of Jesus were his mother and his mother's sister Mary the wife of Clopas and Mary Magdalene When Jesus saw his mother and the disciple whom he loved standing nearby he said to his mother Woman behold your son then he said to the disciple behold your mother, and from that hour the disciple took her to his own home.
3: From the cross he prayed forgiveness for those who crucified him. From the cross he preached the gospel to the condemned thief. Even in the midst of his own agony of body and soul, he takes no account of himself. Instead, he prays and he preaches. From the cross, he holds divine service. The liturgy of pain, the litany of jeers, all of it he bends to his gracious will as he serves sinners. There is no greater love than this. Now he turns his attention to his mother and to his beloved disciple, Many scholars believe that the cross was no more than seven feet tall. Jesus' bloody, twitching, ruined body would have been as close to Mary as when she held him as a child, as close to John as when he reclined on his teacher's breast. In the midst of his agony, he cares not for himself, he cares for them. From the cross, he makes these two, who were not family, into family. Is this not also the very essence of his church? He takes we, who are not family, and makes us into one family. Our Father, the family, prays. Death breaks our earthly families to pieces. It takes spouse parent, child. Leaving gaping holes, leaving empty chairs, leaving hearts pierced through. From the cross, Jesus takes we who are broken, we who are not family, and he makes us into family. One family, one church. He calls us to one another, In the pew behind you, in the pew in front of you, behold your mother, behold your son. This is your eternal family, a family that shall not be broken by death.
2: The fourth word of Christ, Matthew chapter 27. Now from the sixth hour, there was darkness over all the land until the ninth hour. And about the ninth hour, Jesus cried out with a loud voice saying, Eli, Eli, lema sabachthani, that is, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And some of the bystanders hearing it said, this man is calling Elijah. And one of them at once ran and took a sponge filled it with sour wine and put it on a reed and gave it to him to drink. But the others said, Wait, let us see whether Elijah will come to save him.
3: The sixth hour is what we would call noon, and the ninth hour corresponds with three o'clock. From noon to three, there was darkness over all the land, unnatural darkness. At His birth, angels lit the sky with unnatural light. Now heaven is black. At His birth, angels sung loud and joyful hymns. Now heaven is silent. At His baptism, at His transfiguration, the Father's voice boomed from heaven, This is my beloved Son, in whom I am well pleased. Now the Father gives no loving word. He is silent, and all of heaven with him. Only the cry of his Son can be heard, My God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? But there is no answer. God himself has turned away. Here is the burden too great for words. Here is the sorrow none of us can know. Jesus. All the screaming nerves of his body were as nothing compared to the deafening silence from his Father. Why this silence? Why this wrath? Why this hell to pay? You, so that you might be clothed in Christ. Christ is clothed in
2: you. The fifth word of Christ, John chapter 19. After this, Jesus, knowing that all was now finished, said to fulfill the scripture, I thirst. A jar full of sour wine stood there, so they put a sponge full of the sour wine on a hyssop branch and held it to his mouth.
3: Weep not for him. Weep for yourselves, but not for him. He has chosen this. He will not leave Isaac under Abraham's blade. He will not leave Joseph in the pit. Nor will he leave you in your sin and death. He has chosen you. He has chosen forgiveness and life for you he lays down his life willingly to pay the cost. Jesus knew that all was now finished. To fulfill the scripture, he said, I thirst. Psalm 69 says, For my thirst they gave me vinegar to drink. He asked for a sip of water for this one small relief Instead, they tormented him further, giving him sour wine, vinegar to drink. He said, I thirst, and none showed him mercy. Psalm 22 says, My strength is dried up like a potsherd, and my tongue cleaves to my jaws. You lay me down in the dust of death. His was real thirst. Real anguish, real death. With tongue sticking to his mouth, he said, I thirst. In Gethsemane, he prayed, Let this cup pass from me, yet not my will, but thy will be done. He spoke of the cup of divine wrath, the cup of his passion. For the last sip, For the dregs that would bring death, he said, I thirst. He drinks this cup of wrath so that he might give you his own cup instead. His blood for the forgiveness of your sins. In the upper room, he said, I will not drink of this fruit of the vine with you until I drink it with you in my Father's kingdom. And now, knowing the joy that was set before him, knowing that with us, with his family, he will share the richest wine for all eternity, Jesus said, I thirst.
2: The sixth word of Christ John chapter 19, when Jesus had received the sour wine, he said, it is finished, and he bowed his head and gave up his spirit.
3: Bottomless greed, schemes, scams, thieves who break in. White-collared thieves, drug dealers and peddlers of filth, whatever it takes to make a buck. Rich, who complain of what they do not have while millions starve. Your own love for money and its pleasures. Riving perversion, rape and molestation, adultery and homosexuality. Pornography and deviance of every kind. The male eyes that wander. The female eyes that entice. The lust in your own flesh. Murder of the unborn and innocents. Concentration camps and mass graves. Suicides, genocides, torture and cruelty. Blood feuds and every petty grudge, the hatred living in your own heart. It is finished. The Lamb is slain. The Lamb who takes away the sin of the world. Wretchedness. Shame, your past, your present, sin, it is finished. The lamb has been slain. The atonement is complete. He who knew no sin became sin for us. Yes, he became your sin. He is your sin. You are his innocence. He is the sinner. You are the saint. Watch as he bows his head. He takes all sin and drags it into everlasting death. Jesus has his way. You are righteous in the Father's sight. Nothing can change that now.
2: It is finished. The seventh word of Christ, Luke chapter 23. It was now about the sixth hour, and there was darkness over the whole land until the ninth hour, while the sun's light failed. And the curtain of the temple was torn in two, then Jesus, calling out with a loud voice, said, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. And having said this, he breathed his last.
3: This world's sun failed. There is a new sun. The temple curtain. Tore in two, there is a new temple, a new holiest of holies. Do you understand these things? The cross, this seventh word, this death, this is the axis mundi, this is the moment. The old cosmos is passing away. He is making all things new. Do you still live by this world's sun? Do you still seek a temple made with human hands? Do you still labor for what perishes? Where are you? In what cosmos do you live? The old cosmos has passed away. It is finished. It is not the rising and the setting of this world's pale sun by which you live. You live by the dying and rising of Christ. He is your Son, the very light of the world. The veil is torn. The old temple has passed away. The new temple has come. Destroy this temple and in three days I will raise it again, he said, as he spoke of his body. The new temple, the new holiest of holies, is communion in his flesh and blood. Behold, the old cosmos has died with Christ. It is fading away before our very eyes. His death, His resurrection, these are making all things new. And if anyone is in Christ, He is a new creation. You are no longer born of the flesh. You are born of water and the Spirit. Do you think that you are still mortal? Whoever lives and believes in me will never die, says your Lord. Where are you? In what cosmos do you live? Already. Now, but not yet. There is a new creation, there is a new sun, there is a new temple. There is a new Israel. There is a new Exodus. There is a new you. This is why he, through whom the world was made, now hangs upon the cross. The old creation is passing away. The new creation is here and comes. With the dawn of Easter morn, the firstborn of this new creation will rise. He has chosen to make all things new. No one takes my life from me, he says. I lay it down of my own accord. No one takes his spirit from him, he gives it into his Father's hands. Father, Into your hands I commit my spirit. And having said that, he breathed his last.